Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. We're in a new year. We've got a new guest that we've never had before, and I'm so excited to talk with her. We have California Assembly member Laura Friedman. Uh, She represents the 44th District down in SoCal, kind of centered on the Burbank and Glendale area. She is the chair of the California Assembly Committee on Transportation, but that's not all. Last year, in 2022, she authored a bill that would prohibit an entire class, the entire class of PFAS chemicals, also known as forever chemicals, from cosmetic uh, products that are sold in the state of California. So we're going to be talking about that. Um, But she has really got her finger on the pulse of a lot of things that the state is doing to combat climate change and to address environmental pollution. So I am so excited to welcome her. Assemblymember Friedman, we are so happy to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. It's it's really, really exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, I am excited to have you talk to our listeners about your bill, AB 2771. But let's start by having you explain why PFAS chemicals are harmful to human health. I mean, why should we be concerned about being exposed to PFAS chemicals? Yeah, and there's been a lot of uh, stories in the media recently about the rising concern about this class of chemicals for a few reasons. And the first reason is because they're considered to be what's called forever chemicals, meaning that once they're out in the environment, unlike a lot of other chemicals, they don't easily break down. They linger, they stay for, for hundreds of years in the, in the harmful form that they were created. So there, uh, as the health risks of these chemicals become more and more known, there's rising alarm about how much they are now in our environment. Now, PFAS exposure has been linked to all sorts of, of risks, harm to the immune system, reduced vaccine efficacy, harm to development um, for children and fetuses and the reproductive system. It's been linked to reduce birth weight. It impacts fertility. Um, it increases risks of cancers, including breast cancer. And it has a lot of effects on the metabolism that also link to breast cancer and other reproductive cancer risks. It changes cholesterol. It, it impacts weight gain. It impacts animals in the environment. And the terrifying thing is that these chemicals are found in human blood, even in the blood of fetuses. And they are, it's, they're just everywhere at this point. And they've been used for decades on a wide range of products. There's so much concern over PFAS right now that they're listed as a major concern for water agencies across the state because they don't know how to filter them out of the water supply. So it's really, really important that we stop right at the source them from getting into our environment. And like I said, they are used on all kinds of products. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, before the bill that I did on cosmetics, we did a bill to stop their use in children's products. And believe it or Mm -hmm. not, these cancer-causing chemicals that we know cause cancer – have been, are sprayed on children's clothing, children's toys, um, on electronic equipment that children touch and p- put their fingers in the mouth. Um, so this is, this is really something that we have to take strong action on. Agreed. And I'm so glad that we have legislators like you who are, are 
spearheading these important measures. I really want to get into um, the bill that you that you co-authored last year, AB 2771. The governor signed it into law in September. Please help our listeners understand the provisions of this piece of legislation and the wide range of products that are included in this ban. I think sometimes when we talk about, you know, banning things in cosmetics, people who don't wear makeup may think, well, this has nothing to do with me. Wrong. <laughs> help us understand um, this bill and the products that will be impacted by it. So we know from testing, including, you know, very recent testing, that manufacturers have been intentionally adding PFAS to a whole range of personal care products. So yes, it's in lipsticks, it's in mascara, and other products that are called waterproof usually, but it's also used in shaving cream, lotions, cleansers, um, eyeliner, anything that they say is going to make your skin smoother or make your skin shiny. Mm. So these cosmetics that have the highest levels of PFOSs tend to be the ones that are marketed as being waterproof or wear-resistant or long-lasting, just in case you're trying to avoid these cosmetics. Mm -hmm. Now, I believe that Californians should be able to trust that if they buy a product in California that they apply every day to their hair or their skin, that these products are safe. That's, that's what people expect when they buy a product in California. And so for that end, I feel very strongly that given that we know the health impacts of PFAS, they should not be allowed to be sold on the shelves or even online to people in California. In 2018, um, scientists, looked at the Skin Deep database, which contains mm-hmm. ingredient lists for more than 85,000 chemicals. And that's a publicly available website and list that you can look at. And they identified 13 different PFOS compounds that are used in more than 300 products among more than 50 brands. Besides PFOS, there's a chemical called PTFE, which is mm-hmm. also known as Teflon, is the most commonly found ingredient for this class of chemicals. And it's used in more than 200 different products. Oh, now, in gosh. 2021, Clearia reviewed its database of 50,000 beauty and personal care products and found 1,000 cosmetic products from 120 brands that contain PFAS chemicals. Wow. And in addition, researchers from the University of Notre Dame tested 231 cosmetics for PFAS, and they found that more than half of the personal care products contain them, and that most That's products tested didn't list. PFOS compounds on the ingredient labels, but they still had PFOS in them, meaning that the PFOSs could have been contaminants, not intentionally added. So we know that the manufacturers also need to do more to clean up their own supply chain because they're uh-huh. clearly buying products that they use in their, chemi- in their products that are contaminated with PFOS. Now, just lastly, I'll say that the study found that more than two, that three, more than three quarters of waterproof mascara Two-thirds of foundations, and that's all foundations, and liquid lipsticks, and more than half of eye and lip products had high fluorine concentrations that indicated the likely presence of PFOS chemicals. Unbelievable. I, I mean, the, this is just... Yeah, it, the, the the word ubiquitous doesn't even begin <laughs> to describe what you're talking about. Um, now, one of the things that I think is important for people to understand about this bill is not only will it eliminate a significant source of PFAS exposure for human beings, but it could also help keep PFAS out of our water recovery facilities, also known as water treatment plants. And I'd love for you to talk to us about why that is such an important upshot of the bill. 
Yeah, and what was so interesting to me is that when we did this bill, of course, it was supported by a lot of environmentalists. It was supported by public health uh, officials. It was Mm -hmm. also heavily supported by our water agents. Uh, And they, they all came to testify in favor of this bill because PFAS contaminates groundwater. And the water agencies are trying to use expensive treatments to, to get them out of their water system. There's been a lot of um, public attention to how much of uh, this PFAS contamination is in our water supply that we drink. And people are really alarmed by it. So this is a big issue. It's very expensive to try to clean the water up, and it causes water rates to go up as well. And so there's a whole lot of effects on people, even if they don't use any cosmetics, even if they don't use any skin products that they think have PFOS, you are still getting PFOS in your body, most likely, from the water supply. And that's bottled water as well. Uh, it's really any water that's coming from our groundwater. Now, I'll use Orange County as an example here in California. Because PFOSs have been circulating for so long, they're detected in water sources all around the country, including the Orange County groundwater basin, which supplies mm-hmm. 77% of the water supply to 2.5 million people in Orange County. Now, Mm -hmm. that water district is now operating four treatment plants just to remove PFOS PFOS from local well water. It took over a year to complete construction of those facilities, and Orange County is looking at uh, trying to build another 36 facilities Mm -hmm. uh, over the next two years. And that water district is funding 100% of the design and construction of the co- uh, cost and 50% of the operation and maintenance costs for the facilities. And they, of course, have to pass those costs off directly to the water users in Orange County. Well, so, let me tell you another story. You know, we are going to save. Not only <laughs> yeah. is it better for public health, but it's better for our pocketbook to not have PFOSs coming into our water supply. Well, Assemblymember Friedman, you are, you, it's almost like you opened the book of my hometowns, well, or my children's hometown. It's where I live now, um, daily experience. I live in Pleasanton, California. Our groundwater, uh, is badly contaminated. Um, our, our water agencies have shut down wells. They're scrambling to try and build PFAS treatment facilities. And just like Orange County, we are highly highly dependent on the state water project. In a good year, 70% of our drinking water comes from the state water project. But when we've been in a drought and it's not flowing (laughs) and we only get a 5% allocation, we've had to really rely on our groundwater, which is highly contaminated. And now because, you know, the, the testing is where it's at, the regulations and notification levels are where it's at, a city of Pleasanton, California, that used to be a water-rich community. Um, in fact, San Francisco used to used to tap into our water and buy it back at the the turn of the last century, and they you know, they had their fill. Um, we have gone from a, a town that had artesian wells where you could just poke a hole <laughs> in the ground and water came bubbling up to the point now that we have to go about nine hundred feet down to get to our groundwater. And it's contaminated to the point that now we have to import all of our water. We went from water rich to water dependent, 100% dependent on water outside of our city. And right now, water rates have already gone up. They're probably going to go up again. And the the water ratepayers are bearing the cost. It's not the water agency. It's the ratepayers are bearing the cost of trying to remove these dangerous chemicals from our drinking supply. And it's um, 
it's pretty concerning. And I'm just wondering, you know, for all of these California communities like mine, <laughs> like Orange County, that have PFAS contamination in their water supplies, what do you think the state might be able to do to help with the cost of water treatment facilities to remove the PFAS? Well, the state has provided uh, funding in the past for cleaning up water in communities across California, and the voters have also approved bonds for water infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, there's a need for state money, especially for communities that can't pay for their water treatment. I believe the federal government has a responsibility to step in. So we have to think about the fact that with climate change, water is going to continue to be uh, a scarce and precious resource, not just in California not just in the United States, but around the world. And we have to think very long and hard about how we manage our water resources and how, do we, how we protect it. And that includes making sure that we don't pollute it in the first place. Yep, so I absolutely. believe that the United States should have much strict, stricter regulations about the chemicals that we allow out in our environment. You know, other countries in the world, most notably Europe, they make the manufacturers prove that a chemical is safe before they allow it to go out into mm-hmm. the world. In the United States, we pretty much allow the chemical companies to use a chemical until somebody else proves that it's dangerous. Yeah. Now, that seems really crazy to me. And we've seen the results of that time and time again with uh, chemical pollution getting into our environment. And we used to think that uh, we understood everything about how these chemicals interact with nature and interact with our bodies. Clearly, we don't. What's changed is that we have better and better detection devices to show the amount of pollution that's in our own bodies and that's in the environment. I think that we need to have a much stricter standard nationwide about what we allow to be used. And the truth is that we don't need a lot of these chemicals. Nobody needed to have Teflon sprayed on every surface. No one mm-hmm. needs to have PFOS put in their cosmetics. We need to, to try to keep things a little bit simpler and recognize that there are often these very adverse effects, and we should study them fully before we allow these products in the environment. I agree with you fully. And and really, you know, when you think about, you know, some of the bans that we see in other countries, in Asian countries, in European countries, um, it, it really does feel like we're letting future generations of Americans become the guinea pigs. The rest of the world has banned some of these chemicals or has held back on approving them. And they're watching. They're watching to see what happens to our children as a result of the exposure to all of these things. And, and I really feel like we owe it to our children to do a better job of protecting them from harm that the, the, the some of these chemicals and some of these environmental toxins are introducing to their little bodies. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with Assemblymember Friedman from the great state of California. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. If you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is California Assembly Member Laura Friedman. She represents the 44th District down in um, the Burbank, Glendale area in Los Angeles County. Um, and we are so excited to have her on. In the last segment, we were talking about a bill that she co-authored last year to ban the entire spectrum of PFAS chemicals from cosmetic products. Um, and and Assembly Member Friedman, you know, California has banned PFAS from other products too. You mentioned juvenile products. Uh, California's also banned PFAS from firefighting foam, pl- uh, plant fiber-based um, food packaging, and some other products. And, and I'm curious what you expect the impact of these bans in California to have on the wider market beyond state lines. Well, the really gratifying thing about being a legislator in California is that because we have the bulk of the population of the country, what we do makes a huge difference because it's pretty much impossible for manufacturers to make products for the U.S. market and decide to not sell them into California. Mm-hmm. So when California changed its fuel standards, it changed the fuel standards just de facto for the entire nation uh, for mm-hmm. automobiles. When, when California uh, announced the ban of, on PFAS and food packaging and juvenile products and personal care products, well... Just a few weeks ago, 3M, which is the major manufacturer of PFOS, announced that they are phasing PFOS out of all of their products by 2025. Mm-hmm. So this, with, with Europe moving forward and California moving forward, it changes the markets for products. And we see it also happening state by state from coast to coast. Yep. A new law was signed by New York State Governor Kathy mm-hmm. Holchul that on the use of PFOS in clothing in New York. And Mm -hmm. so we see these ideas about health and sustainability resonating from consumers and voters all the way up to lawmakers. And and that's really the way that it 
it tends to happen in this country is that people become more aware and they demand change. And when you talk about children's clothing and children's products, you see people really getting very upset to think that they have, and I feel the same way. I'm the mom mm-hmm. of a nine-year-old. Mm-hmm. And the idea that for the past nine years of my daughter's life, I have been unknowingly supplying her with clothing mm-hmm. and toys soaked in cancer-causing PFAS chemicals really enrages me. Mm-hmm. And that I've been putting makeup on my face that have PFAS is really, really upsetting. I had breast cancer in my 30s. And you gotta wow. want, I have to wonder, were there triggers in the environment that weren't uh-huh. present 100 years ago that caused me to get cancer when maybe I wouldn't have if these chemicals hadn't have been there. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll never know for certain in any individual case, but we mm-hmm. need to do everything we can to reduce those kinds of risks. And Absolutely. given that we know the health impacts, I think it's very appropriate that we see states moving, but the federal government needs to move. It shouldn't have to go state by state. You shouldn't, your child shouldn't be safer in one state than in another. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that it's very important that we see states acting and I think it will happen. It's a matter of time, but we need to, I think, across the country, make sure that we put public health uh, as the number one priority. Well said. Well said. And I know that our listeners are all nodding their heads up and down in agreement. Thank you for that. Now, in addition to this PFAS legislation that you uh, that you introduced and, and successfully spearheaded through to the governor's signature, you're also the chair of the Assembly Committee on Transportation. And as many of our listeners know, transportation is a significant component of most communities' greenhouse gas emissions inventories. Um, and I'd love for you to talk to us about what the committee is working on to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from California's transportation sector? Sure. Well, um, CARB, the California Air Board, just came out with their scoping plan about how they're going to reach their emissions goals. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, they say in the report that they cannot meet their goals, even with all of the renewable energy that California is now generating, even with the fact that we're the strict, one of the strictest states, if not the strictest state, when it comes to pollution, uh, uh, those kinds of, of emissions, we can't make our goals without reducing the vehicles, the vehicle miles traveled. In other words, as much uh, the, the driving that we all do by 25%. Mm-hmm. That's wow. a really big number in a state that developed as a car culture-centered state. <laughs> yeah. And I used to chair the Natural Resources Committee in the Assembly, and I I did a lot of work on pollution and environmental issues and climate change for that committee. I made the choice to go to the transportation committee because I think that it is not considered enough when we think about our environmental goals. Mm-hmm. Um, we have got to de-silo issues like transportation and housing yeah. from the environmental discussion. And one of my biggest goals in the legislature is to make people who are environmentally concerned understand that we uh, that that transportation, climate, and housing are all intertwined. They are the same issue, and yes. we can't be serious about climate change without changing how we use land in many cases in this country, mm-hmm. and how we think about mobility. And I would Absolutely. go a step further and say that there's public health impacts to being a car cultured country. That there's huge equity issues. Um, there's land use issues in terms of bio, um, biodiversity and protecting our open spaces. And we've got to start thinking about all of these uh, um, issues. 
So uh, yes. when I think about transportation to reduce greenhouse gases, I think about safety. I think about maintenance and rehabilitation. I think about electric vehicle infrastructure. But I mostly think about transit and active transportation and how we use lands, yeah. how we use land. So we Absolutely. Have, I had uh, informational hearings last year on hydrogen, um, for instance, and we're going to be holding informational hearings about land use and our investments in transportation infrastructure. Hmm. Um, and just to, to make this clear, we all love our open space across the nation, and I'll talk about California. People value our, our oceans and our deserts and our mountains. Now, we are growing mm-hmm. as a society, and not just because of people moving to California. They've always moved to California, but mm-hmm. also because people have children, and the children survive, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to have housing for all of those people, we have two choices. One is we can build the same kind of suburban um, sprawl that we have built in California very well for decades, which means we have to go into that beautiful open space to create those new sprawling subdivisions. Or we can create denser communities that are more walkable and bikeable. And not only does that protect our biodiversity and protect those open spaces, but it also presents the opportunity for ways of, of moving around our communities that don't have emission profiles or as mm-hmm. big a emission profile. And that's mass transit, like buses and trains and light rail. And it's active transportation, like walking and cycling which is mm-hmm. really hard to do in a suburban neighborhood where you are probably very far away from a grocery store and far away from where you work. But in a more urban context, picture San Francisco, picture Boston yep. even. People can take the light rail. They can, they can walk. They can bike to all of those different amenities, to the drugstore, to the grocer, to a doctor, to where they work. And that's the kind of, of living that allows for more housing, it allows for moving around in a way that reduces emissions. It's also healthier to incorporate active transportation mm-hmm. into your daily routine rather than just moving into your car and driving somewhere. It also is more equitable because a lot of people can't own cars in California because it's expensive. It's expensive mm-hmm. to buy them. It's expensive to insure them. It's expensive to fuel them, whether it's gas or electric. And so we tend to leave those more vulnerable residents behind. Also, older residents often can't drive safely, and certainly younger residents may be too young to to drive a car. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of equity reasons why you want to invest in your mass transportation and your your active transportation. And I'll throw one more in. You know, in today's (laughs) world, people complain all the time about the disconnect we have from each other, from our communities, that people are, are... um, angry at their neighbors, that they feel politically at odds with their neighbors. Maybe they don't even see their neighbors because they're just mm-hmm. driving past them. Being in public transportation and being on the streets gives you the chance to encounter people and look them in the eye, to say good morning to them the way mm-hmm. that they do in great cities around the world. And that develops a sense of community. And well, we tend to does. not have as much of that community often in a suburban sprawl kind of context. And, you know, I have lived in suburban areas. I've lived in urban areas that are denser. I've lived in, you know, smaller towns where you have that urban, you know, think about the old traditional main streets in our older communities where Mm -hmm. you have those main streets that have all the businesses and people go there to eat and they walk around and they see each other. Um, You know, we've gotten away from that. So so that kind of, of city center exists in great cities. It exists in small rural communities. It doesn't tend to exist in those planned suburban, you know, particularly gated communities that we see in other parts of the country. And, and I would argue that 
um, we, if, if we're going to be environmentalists and, and care about, you know, the environment, we can't create communities where you are forced to drive everywhere in a single occupancy car. Um, it, it's well, and there's another piece of this. Yeah, there's another yeah. piece of this, too. I mean, you know, we just talked about what's going on with water agencies that are having to you know, grapple with upgrading their infrastructure to treat for PFAS. And one of the things that we have to remember is that every time, and this isn't, you know, just something that California has had to deal with, but California certainly has, where we have seen, you know, what some people call sprawl, um, where we expand our communities out into areas where we need new infrastructure. A lot of times the, the, the folks who are developing those communities will put the infrastructure in. But then the operations, maintenance, modernization, upgrades um, of all of that infrastructure falls upon the municipalities and the taxpayers in those municipalities. And, and so, sometimes we forget about the long-term costs of the infrastructure that's needed to support some of those communities as well. And, and what happens after the development has gone in and can we really support the operations and maintenance and modernization costs of that infrastructure. And and I haven't seen that factored in to the decisions about some of the development, um, you know, that the California has made over the past few decades. And I don't know if that's Absolutely. something that can and, be handled and, and, and legislatively. Building, and, and, and building infill where you already have that infrastructure uh-huh. and also building um, multifamily dwellings is a lot more sustainable. And people say, well, if we're going to have all these new people come to California, what are we going to do about the water? Actually, building a new apartment building yeah, is so, so much, much more efficient, efficient. water-wise <laughs> yeah. and everything else to have people living in a building like that than living oh, in yeah. a bunch of single-family houses anywhere in the state. And so well, the message shouldn't be, we're going to yeah. stop growth, because we can't stop growth. What stopping growth means is only allowing the richest people to live there, because yeah. people are going to live where there is jobs. And there's always going to be people who are going to need to be in the lower paying you know, jobs in the service industry and in restaurants and hotels. And what we've done by saying we're not going to make room for them in our communities is we've pushed them further and further away from those job centers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. into extremely long drives and commutes. And a terrible way of life. I mean, that's a life drain. It's absolutely a life drain. And, you know, if we say we value families in this state and in this country, then we need to think about the impact that those kinds of commutes have on families. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but I'm loving this conversation with you. (laughs) And so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this quick break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. 
Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you joined us today. Our guest is Assembly Member from the great state of California, Laura Friedman, and we're talking about a, a variety of topics um, dealing with California's environment, um, combating climate change, protecting human health from chemical exposure. Um, Assembly Member Friedman, in addition to your role as chair of the Assembly Committee on Transportation, you chair the California Legislature's Environmental Caucus with a previous Go Green Radio guest, Senator Ben Allen. What do you expect the caucus's priorities to be in 2023? Well, the Environmental Caucus in the legislature does not have priorities like other caucuses, and it doesn't support legislation. What it does is it gets a bicameral and bipartisan group of legislators together to listen to experts talk about different environmental issues and also to explore different solutions. So it's very much set up as a educational mm. caucus, and we that way we grow participation. And we get legislators who sometimes wouldn't participate if they thought that it was uh, a, a caucus that had set expectations for them. It brings mm-hmm. them into the room which is a good thing. We, we get Republican members, we get conservative members, we get members from all across the state to come to hear experts talk about a variety of environmental um, uh, issues in a mm-hmm. kind of in a safe space where they can ask questions. So mm-hmm. we're not going to be setting priorities, and I'm not sure at this point what we're going to, who we're going to be hearing from, but we're always open to ideas and suggestions. I, I'm also a member of the Progressive Caucus in the legislature, which does take positions on bills, including environmental bills. Um, And Ah. with that caucus, I work with my colleagues organically on a whole bunch of issues to bring people into the environmental space who don't always work on those issues. So we in the Progressive Caucus will have subject matter that we always um, try to take bills on in this variety of subjects. And the environmental issues is one of the subjects that we target. So we'll usually try to support two or three environmental bills every session. Excellent. Excellent. You know, you also serve on the Budget Subcommittee on Climate Crisis, Resources, Energy and Transportation. And honestly, until I saw that on your website, I did not know that that Budget Subcommittee existed. And so I'd love for you to talk to us about the function of that committee and some of the most pressing issues you expect to see come before that subcommittee. Thank you. Yes. So we have a number of budget subcommittees on a a variety of, of topics. And one of them is on, on climate and transportation and energy, like you said. 
So the, the, the function of those committees is, is really a few different things. Number one, we do the budget every year. And as part of the budget process, the budget areas and the budget issues that deal with these different topics are sent to the subcommittees to review. And the subcommittees make their recommendations to the budget chair who, you know, really does follow uh, a lot of those recommendations. And in fact, the budget chair is a member of all of the committees and will often sit in on the hearings as well. Mm-hmm. So we discuss and we have these public um, public hearings to talk about what's going to go into the very large California budget as it relates to transportation, as it relates to climate, uh, energy, and all of those issues. So this is, the committee is part of the formal budget process where that budget then goes to the governor to make, you know, his or her changes and then to ratify that budget. So the budget subcommittees are extremely important for setting the budget of California and deciding what we're going to prioritize and what we're going to fund. All Mm -hmm. of the programs and all of the agencies are discussed when we have these hearings, which are are very long and very intensive and and also include um, members from all of the different agencies, like the Natural Resources Agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, the California Transportation um, Agency will all come and talk through their variety of programs so that we can, you know, over, have oversight and review. And we do have oversight of the different environmental agencies like the Water Board and the Energy mm-hmm. Commission, and we do that through these budget subcommittee hearings. It allows us to discuss new proposals for spending money on new programs. It allows us to review the implementation of existing programs. And so the environmental agencies will come before this budget subcommittee, and we can ask them questions. And I will tell you, that sometimes those hearings can get heated because sometimes we'll challenge the agencies on on the results that they are or are not getting. Mm -hmm. Now, this year, the state is going to be facing a deficit, and that's going to impact all the areas of the budget. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the funding for transportation, for climate and resources programs, are not reliant on the state's general fund. So those areas of the budget might be a little less affected by a downturn in revenues, but certainly... Um, a lot of those areas are going to be affected. Now, during mm-hmm. a surplus, a lot of extra general fund dollars were appropriated to transportation and climate and resources programs. And there's the potential that some of that funding that was appropriated but it's not actually been spent might be clawed back to address mm-hmm. any shortfall. And so we're going to have to consider those cuts as part of the governor's budget proposals that are going to come out on January 10th. And that's when you're going to start to see these budget hearings starting mm-hmm. now well and, and one that's, other thing i want to mention sure yeah. go right so ahead. Go, ahead. go ahead well I, I think you know it's good for uh, california residents to understand this process and this isn't something that we typically cover in you know basic uh civics <laughs> in our k-12 through education and how these budget subcommittees work and i'd just love to know how everyday people might be able to view these um or, or get involved in these are these live streamed uh do they you know do you have to be in sacramento to participate what's the process they are all live streamed and i'm sure that there is a a web a government website through the assembly that's dedicated to that particular subcommittee, and you can uh-huh. watch it live. Now, during COVID, we allowed for remote testimony, uh-huh. but some of that's being changed back to only allow people that are in person to give testimony. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's really for a variety of reasons. Um, I mean, some of it was just the audio. It was really difficult to, 
sometimes hear people and to see uh-huh. the, to hear the testimony. Um, and it makes it very difficult sometimes to ask questions. Uh, uh, but, and so that is changing and going back. Um, oh. But you can certainly watch and you can also send remote testimony in advance. And, and okay. I always suggest to people that because the testimony during the hearing, if you're not a primary witness, the testimony mm-hmm. tends to be very brief that, that's allowed. You know, whether you're in person or by phone, it's, it's sort of, my name is so-and-so and I come from such-and-such and I'm for this or I'm against uh-huh. this. And that really a better way to give testimony is to send emails and to send letters directly to the committee members. Because that's you have a lot more space and a lot more time to make your uh-huh. case rather than just to say sort of me too. Yeah, um, no, that's a great piece of information. Yeah, and I remember, <laughs> and this is this is going to show my age a little bit, but I remember that, you know, Governor Jerry Brown was called Moonbeam because one of his initiatives was to televise uh, what was going on in mm-hmm. the Capitol. Um, and at that time, everybody thought, well, that's, that's you know, that's crazy. You know, that's, that's hooky-roo. Um, but that really opened up access um, in a way that that was so much more equitable than the closed door sessions of, of things the way they used to be. And so I love the fact that people can still can participate, um, even if they can't make the trek up to Sacramento. So I think that's really important. You know, on your official website, it says that your legislative work is focused in three primary areas, um, addressing the housing affordability and homelessness crisis, combating climate change, which we've been talking about, and protecting vulnerable communities. I would really love to give you a chance to talk about your work on affordable housing, because this is an issue that is really rocking the state from from tip to tip and side to side. Sure. And I've co-authored a number of affordable housing measures in the state and been the primary author on a lot of housing measures as well. And every year I do bills on housing. And lately I've been trying more and more to do bills that also more overtly link housing to land use and environmental issues. Uh, Mm -hmm. All housing is an environmental issue, in in my opinion, Um, but I've been trying to find those sweet spots to, through policy, really draw attention to that. So I did a bill this last year that has gotten nationwide attention. I was actually been surprised at how much attention this bill has gotten. And that bill was called um, called, um, AB 20, I think, uh, um, 2097, I always forget numbers, so excuse me. Oh, there's so many of them, don't worry. (laughs) Yeah, what AB, and I've got other bills I'm I'm happy to talk about, but let me just pull this one out for a second. AB 2097 Mm -hmm. dealt with parking. Now, Hmm. why is parking a big deal? Parking actually has been, in some ways for me, the nexus between the issues of climate, transportation um, choices, Mm -hmm. and and transit, uh, land use, and housing. And the reason mm-hmm. is because we have prioritized space for single family, for single occupancy cars over housing for people. What does that look like? In California, we have approximately a thousand square feet of surface parking dedicated for every car. So for every car that's in California, there is at least a thousand square feet of parking for that car. And in many mm-hmm. cases, much more. For every person in California, there's 800 square feet of housing. Let that mm-hmm. sink in. We have given more land to cars than we have to housing. Wow. And that really, in a nutshell, the priority that we have got to flip on its head. What this bill says 
is that near transit, high-quality transit, so train stops and major bus stops, we can no longer, a municipality can no longer tell a developer how much parking they need to put on their site. Hmm. What does that look like in practice? So, So why? We know from research that if you have an area that provides ample free parking, people will drive there. No matter how much transit you have in that area, people will drive into that area. But if you have an area where parking is more difficult, and I'll take the, I'll take Santa Monica, the Third Street Promenade, for instance, mm-hmm. um, you know, where it's expensive to park, where it's hard to find parking, and you then offer really good transit, guess what? People use the transit. Interesting, because I know that a lot of businesses are pushing back on this. You know, I mean, if you've got downtown businesses near, you know, high density housing, I I know that city councils are hearing a lot of pushback on this. And it's really interesting. But what you said about allocating 200 more square feet per car than we do for humans. I mean, cars are bigger, but still it, it is it. It, it is a, a priority choice that we've made. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but we're going to come sure. back to this on the other side of the break. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in with us today. Assemblymember Friedman, though this radio show is primarily focused on environmental topics, I would also love 
to ensure that our listeners get a chance to know you on other levels. And I would really like to give you a chance to talk to our listeners about your work to reform the legislature's response to sexual harassment. It's really become a model for other states and local governments to follow. So tell us more about that. Sure. When I came into the legislature in 2016, I was assigned to the Rules Committee. And in 2017, I got a letter saying that I was going to chair a select committee on harassment, discrimination, and retaliation. And I didn't really think much of it. I sort of put it into a pile. And then a few months later, revelations broke, and some very brave women came forward to talk about harassment that they had experienced from members of the legislature in the last couple of years, um, in, in the previous few years. And I realized that the committee that I had had that I thought was a bit of a sleeper committee was now going to be extremely important. So we, I went to the speaker and asked if we could expand the committee and make it bicameral because some of the complaints were against a senator. Mm-hmm. And so we reconfigured the committee and made it um, to, had it to include the Senate as well as the Assembly. And we had a series of very intense hearings hearing from victims, and we had major media from around the country there, and these incredibly brave women came forward to talk about their really awful experiences, experiencing sexual harassment in the legislature. And then we had a series of hearings where we brought experts in from a whole range of subjects, from human resources, from the legal field, from uh, the training field, to talk about best practices. And we changed the legislature's procedures about how they deal with sexual harassment to provide a, an independent new branch of the legislature to investigate workplace harassment claims. We set up improved and very robust training for legislators, staff, and lobbyists. And we made it clear that we weren't going to tolerate harassment of any sort and that legislators wouldn't be protected and neither would staff. Mm -hmm. And that we would have a very easy way for anybody, staff, the public, lobbyists, and other members to file um, uh, complaints about what they were experiencing in the legislature. And since then, we have had what we wanted, which was a a market increase in the reports that came in because we wanted to to know even very early before something Mm -hmm. was what you consider a fireable offense or an egregious offense, We wanted to try to intervene early to give people training and counseling, you know, because the goal is not to just fire people. The goal is to provide a better work environment for everybody. So we have been doing that and it's a work in progress, but something that I'm really, really proud of. And we are the only state house in the nation that has this kind of robust process. And I would say that the federal government lacks anything close to this as well. Clearly. And so California, once again, (laughs) is serving as a model for the country. Yeah, I, I'm proud of it, too, because I remember when all of that went down and um, it was just one more way that my state made me so proud in the way that you handled that and, and the way the, the team around you handled that. I thought it was very mature, very 21st century, very, very helpful for creating a better workplace environment than um, than maybe previous staffers and legislators had had realized. I, I'm always interested when I when I talk to a public servant. Um, yeah, how did you first get involved in politics, Assemblywoman Friedman? I mean, what are some of the most um, important lessons you've learned along the way, and and what keeps you there? Well, I'll just say my mother 
Uh, I grew up in South Florida. My parents were New Yorkers. My mother hated Florida. She moved there because my father <laughs> had, had gotten work there. And at the time, this was you know, going back a while. Uh, Florida, well, look, I think Florida's kind of come back around again to where it had been back in the 60s and the 70s. Yep. But my mother started the first chapter of Now in, South, in Broward County, Florida. And I, my earliest memories um, of, of politics were being forced to canvas the ERA <laughs> and for abortion rights in South Florida. And my mom being the only mom that wore jeans on the whole block. And uh, I said that I would never, ever go into politics after that. And I avoided it for many years. I was a movie executive. I worked in Hollywood. I came to Los Angeles to work in the film industry. And really, I always voted and I paid attention, but I did never thought that I'd be in politics. And then I started volunteering for the L.A. Conservancy, doing historic preservation work and mm-hmm. getting involved in environmental issues. And the next thing I knew, I was on a city commission in Glendale, really enjoying that, and then uh, got, had my cancer experience and decided mm-hmm. that, you, that I wanted to make a bigger difference than I was making in the film industry. And I decided to run for the Glendale City Council, and I was successful in doing that did a lot of environmental work on the city council. I gave up my car for two years and experienced just riding my bike to work every day and started focusing on, on those kinds of issues as well. And then I decided to run for state assembly. And here I am. And there you are. And and I, I love that whole arc, <laughs> the whole story arc uh, of how you came to be. And it's it's just it's so inspiring. You know, there's a there's a group of listeners that we have for Go Green Radio that I really try to to include in every show. And we have a lot of young adults out there who really want to be a part of creating a more just and sustainable world, but they just don't know how to get started. Um, and they don't know what kind of education they need. And I'd love for you to share your your journey um, in terms of your education, your career, because you're doing so much to create a more just and sustainable world. Give some advice to these young listeners, if you would. I think that there's an infinite number of paths to becoming an activist or to making a difference. And people do it from all walks of life and with all educational backgrounds and in their own way. I have an amazing Girl Scout troop leader that for the troop that my daughter's in. And she has, you know, she does other stuff during the day, but in her Girl Scout troop, she also makes it a point to educate the little girls about sustainability and about the world around them. That's making a huge difference. Mm-hmm. There are other people who go and study government or study law, and they go and become environmental lawyers, and they make a huge difference in that way. Uh, there are people who go into the arts and entertainment and make movies like Don't Look Up and mm-hmm. move millions of people through their art. Uh, there are people who become songwriters, who write music that touches people, that also reminds them to care about the world around them. So there's an infinite number of ways of making a difference, no matter who you are. Uh, and uh, I would say that you need to find your own way. And also, I know for young people that the problems that we face feel overwhelming. They feel overwhelming to me, and I'm not that young. But doing just one thing and getting just one thing done, even if it's writing 10 postcards during election season, even if it's telling your neighbors how to recycle all of that moves the needle, right? You don't have to move the needle from zero to 50 right right away. You can just move it a little bit at a time. But if everybody does that, that's what changes the world. So 
think about what you can accomplish that's realistic and then try to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's all that I ask from everybody is that you just do what you can, even if it's yourself recycling something, mm-hmm. uh, even if it's yourself buying a product that has less plastic, even if it's writing those postcards or letting your friends know about why it's important to vote. All of that is incredibly important. And not everyone does even the small things. So just by listening to this radio show, I know you care. And I know I'm talking to a lot of people who are activists. And I want to thank them. I want to thank them for caring because that's the start of a movement. Assemblywoman Friedman, you are a breath of fresh air, and it has been an absolute delight having you on the show. And I know that I and and the rest of our our listeners and the Go Green Radio family are going to be watching and um, looking forward to having you back on, watching your work, and and looking forward to updates. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us as well. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life. To go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.